loving sairam and uh, greetings from prashanti nilayam today i am going to switch gears by which i mean that instead of offering quotes from swami's book dharma vahini and uh, elaborating on them i shall instead offer some other quotes all picked from our sai inspired service and we might talk around these quotes now why do i do that i do that for a very specific reason almost all the quotes i am going to cite today relate to society and what i wish to emphasize in this talk is contrary to what we usually imagine spirituality has a lot and in fact everything to do with daily life it is to stress that fact that i am presenting this talk in a somewhat different fashion in the process i hope to point out that because of the intimate connection between life society and spirituality dharma also gets closely connected to society this connection between dharma and society is hardly being understood or appreciated including by most of our devotees it is for highlighting this link that i have decided to deviate from my normal format of relying on quotes from dharma vahini and have switched to other quotes instead incidentally this illustrates that no matter which quote of swami you pick up satya dharma and prema are inevitably embedded in that quote so let me start today with the following quote of swami quote today people think that spirituality has no relation to mundane life and vice versa this is a big mistake true divinity is a combination of spirituality and social obligations national unity and social harmony are founded upon spirituality it is the divine that links spirituality and social existence the creator and the prakriti or cosmos are inextricably associated with each other hence god should not be regarded as separate from creation see god in the cosmos that is the end of the quote and this quote is from a discourse delivered in february 1991 I am offering this quote just to stress an important point which is that spirituality is not something far removed and remote from daily life and so called mundane activities rather it's the other way about maybe i should offer some words of explanation because many might have doubts about what i have quoted recently i was addressing a group of devotees who had come here from america and as always i invited questions from the audience during this q and a session a lady said and i quote as best as i can remember spirituality is so difficult for us ordinary people at that time i did not have this quote of swami ready with me but i tried to convey it just as best as i could people do not realize that if you are nice and polite that is being spiritual if someone wants a little help like wanting to know how to get to a particular place and one helps that person that is being spiritual 
if one calls on a person who has lost a dear one and does a bit of consoling that also is being spiritual if one does not waste energy food or time that is being spiritual in fact if one does the work one is supposed to do and is in fact being paid for it that also is being spiritual this last point is very important far more than people realize in fact it is so important that somi called special attention to it during a discourse he delivered when he visited delhi in march 1999 i know because i was with somi during that trip i would say that the reminder that somi gave on that occasion was very much needed in delhi delhi being the capital city it is full of people who work for the government and having been in government service i know very well how the work culture of government servants has degenerated over the years in fact these days people hardly work in 1999 we did not have cell phones and private phones in home survey were a rarity at that time telecom in india had not yet done a big leap forward so one thing people would regularly do the moment they came to office would be to hog the office phone and make all the phone calls they wanted to including to relatives in other cities hardly anyone realized that this was totally against the spirit of karma yoga now all these same people would in the name of satsang unfailed failingly attend geeta lectures ramayana lectures and so on but when it came to work spirituality was totally forgotten this is precisely where somi is so very different from the numerous gurus that you see all over the place those gurus try to say things that people want to hear but somi being the avatar tells people what they should hear notice the attention that somi calls to national unity and social harmony but how many people listen politicians of all hues come here every day they fall at somi's feet and so on but once they go outside almost every party at some time or the other stages what is called a band which is nothing but a total paralysis of all life shops are forced to pull down their shutters buses are not allowed to ply and taxis too are prevented from operating trucks are not allowed to move and so on it goes people squat on railway tracks and prevent trains from running in one town a parent was trying to take his very sick child to the hospital he was almost there but could not proceed further because a big political rally staging a band blocked the road his child died there in the rickshaw unable to get medical help this sort of thing happens regularly and no politician appears to care the strange thing is courts have declared bans to be illegal and the supreme court too has condemned it but hardly anyone is least bothered how much time is wasted how much work is obstructed how many people are left stranded when they arrive at railway stations and airports but who cares the point is that while bans may be good politics they are definitely against spirituality next i wish to draw your attention to the fact that spirituality is all about making our actions benefit humanity in some manner or the other and in the process become illuminated about the divine nature of the spirit within us 
This particular quote stresses what I earlier referred to as our cosmic responsibility. Let us hear what Swami has to say about all this. Quote, There are questions raised. Of what relation is society and social ties with the spirit and its glory? Of what relation is the spirit with society's tangles and trickeries? Such questions arise from erring minds. Spiritual endeavor must aim at individual illumination, social betterment and the divinization of the human community. This is extremely urgent and essential. While in society, the divinity inherent in man can blossom more quickly, more widely and more fragrantly. You recognize the world, but not God who is immanent in it. So too you see the individual, but not the corpus that is immanent in society. End of quote. Notice the stress on seeing God in society. Swami often reminds his students that this is indeed what the Vedic hymn Purusha Suktam conveys and adds, Service to man is actually service to God. Next to peace. All of us yearn for peace. But how many realize that we cannot enjoy true peace unless there is peace and harmony in the entire neighborhood and indeed in the whole world? That peace has to start first with peace within, which manifests when love from the heart flows outside in thoughts, words and deeds. And it must do so seeing God everywhere. Commenting on all this, Swami says, quote, Your peace and happiness are linked with the world's peace and happiness. Any act of hatred or violence committed by you will pollute the atmosphere of the world. Adore any living being, and that adoration reaches God, for He is in every being. Insult any living being, and the insult too reaches God. Therefore, expand love towards all. Everywhere. End of quote. This quote is far more important than we might realize, and the reason for my saying so is contained in the last two sentences. Swami says that if we insult any living being, then that insult ultimately reaches God, for God is in all living beings. Normally, when we talk of beings, we usually think only in terms of humans. However, in God's vision, all living creatures are each in their own way, embodiments of God. We, however, do not seem to see them as such, and that is why we hardly bother if the tiger or the snow leopard or the whale is being hunted out of existence. This is wrong, and the first step in correcting this wrong would be to expand our vision. The word that Swami uses in this context is drishti. Drishti or vision could be of two basic types. The first type is narrow vision or sankushta drishti, which is clearly undesirable. The other type is broad vision or vishala drishti, which is what must be cultivated. When vision is expanded, so is the mind. Thus, a person with a broad vision or vishala drishti automatically has a broad mind and a generous heart. Notice that in the last sentence, Swami talks of expansion of love. That expansion of love is simply not possible if one has petty feelings, narrow vision and a narrow mind. By the way, a narrow mind makes the person a slave to selfishness and jealousy. 
Once one gets rid of selfishness, one can easily acquire a broad vision. And with broad vision or Vishaladrishti comes what Swami refers to as Vishalabhavam or broad-mindedness. Now why are broad vision and broad mind so very important? Because they open the door to resolving conflicts. Take the issue of river water. There are river water disputes everywhere. Within America, among the states of America, there are river water disputes. There are similar disputes in Africa. And of course, India too has its own quota. As population grows, so does the demand for water. People need water not only for drinking and their daily needs, as they always have, but also for agriculture, which is thousands of years old. But with the growth of technology, not only has it been possible to build huge dams, store water and divert it to many places that never had water before, but technology itself has begun to demand water for its various manufacturing process. Few are aware how much water is used to produce one kilogram of steel. And the semiconductor industry that supplies us chips for everything from TV sets to computers to mobile phones, video games and whatnot, simply drinks water. And then there are huge urban facilities. Even as air traffic is rapidly expanding, so do airports. They have to handle bigger aircrafts and larger numbers of them. I read somewhere that soon Heathrow, the busiest airport in Europe, would have to handle about 200 million passengers per year. 200 million passengers per year. I leave you to figure out how much water demand that would imply. And then we want buildings all over the place. Building construction, road construction, construction of flyovers, all this requires cement. And cement manufacturer drinks water. People are buying cars in millions, even in India, something that was unimaginable barely 15 years ago. Just think of how much water is needed just for car wash. And so on it goes. What we learn from all this is that the moment we start increasing our demands for this and that, the water and land demands also go up. Invariably, there are many competing groups for the same resource and soon conflicts erupt. For example, if you take the river Kaveri that rises in the western ghats and flows eastwards towards the Bay of Bengal, cutting through the states of Karnataka and Tamil Nadu, there is demand for Kaveri water from both sides. Karnataka, as the upper riparian state, says it has a greater right since the river rises in its territory. Tamil Nadu, which is the lower riparian state, says, Oh, thousands of our farmers have been dependent on Kaveri water for over a century and the supply has been guaranteed according to a legal agreement. So we, we, we have a better claim. Karnataka retorts that not only has the situation changed much since then, but in fact the so-called agreement had been forced unjustly by the British down the throat of the poor people of Karnataka. And so on, the argument has been going on for decades, until for one fine day, the fight was all within Karnataka itself. How come? 
Well, the city of Mysore depends on Kaveri for drinking water and the city found that it was not getting its share. Meanwhile, the city itself was growing and the demand for drinking water was also growing. So, there was a competition for the same Kaveri water between the city of Mysore and sugarcane farmers in the neighboring district. And so the issue became the following. Whose need was greater, that of the city or that of the farmer? All within Karnataka. So you see, almost everywhere one looks, one finds that conflicts generally boil down to two and sometimes more than two parties competing for the same pie. Nobody wants to give in, and hardly anyone is ready to share. It is these differences that frequently snowball and lead to even insurgencies and terrorism, which have now become a global phenomenon. You have them in some form or the other in Latin America, in Africa, in many parts of Asia, including, of course, India, and in the Philippines. If you look at all this, and then take a look at that last quote of Swami, you would realize that this alone offers a platform for rethinking all issues related to conflict and finding some decent solutions. I do not have the time to discuss all those details presently, but I do hope at least some of you would care to examine it thoroughly in study circles. Let me move on and now make a brief reference to some of the larger implications of the above quote. Basically, the time has come when we start looking at ourselves not as individuals with all kinds of self-interest, but rather as parts of one cosmic whole. In other words, we have to go beyond our limited individual identity, which is connected to our ego self and arises out of Dehabhimanam or body consciousness. We must transcend body consciousness and we must rise to the level of Atma Bhimanam. That is to say, we must simply identify ourselves with the Atma. Maybe tough, but if we do that, that would automatically wipe out differences between us as individuals, elevating us to a much higher spiritual level. Okay, suppose we do that. What good does that do? Well, it gets rid of many a problem. When it comes to, say, a water problem, there is only one owner of that water, and that is the Atma. And since there is only one Atma, a person downstream does not see himself as different from a person upstream. The net result is water is shared in an appropriate manner without conflict. When I gave my talks on the Gita and awareness, I discussed this in terms of analogies with the organs of a human body and how they beautifully coordinate and cooperate for the well-being of the body as a whole. Since I have said it all earlier, I think I can skip it for the present. So, what it all boils down to is that we must begin to look at things from a cosmic point of view and act with cosmic responsibility. Cosmic responsibility does not make any sense unless there is first a spirit of sacrifice. Now, the word sacrifice often carries an unpleasant connotation implying pain, denial, etc. However, when Atma Bhavam takes over, that is to say one is suffused with a cosmic feeling, the person sacrificing does not feel pain. Instead, he or she experiences the joy of giving. 
sacrifice is the undercurrent of all of Swami's teachings. And that is so because it is also the undercurrent of the Vedas, the Gita. Again and again Swami tells his students, You are what you are because of society. You therefore owe a debt to society. When you go out, your main aim must be to serve society in every way you can. Amazingly, Bill Gates too has often stressed the debt we owe to society. In fact, Andrew Carnegie, Warren Buffett and many others have also stressed the same. Swami, however, raises the discussion to a much higher plane and he says, quote, It is only when the individual is prepared to sacrifice his selfish desires and toil for the welfare of society that the nation would prosper. Then only would the world have peace. That is why the Vedas proclaim that man can have peace only when he renounces selfish desires. The Vedas express disapproval of persons who accumulate wealth and who are ever immersed in activities that can add to their physical comfort. The man who gives, receives, even while he gives, more than what he gives. End of quote. This quote explains the merit and the practical benefit we receive from sacrifice. It is when we sacrifice and bring joy to others that we find real peace within us. Once we are filled with peace, that peace would unquestionably make its impact outside. Even as the fragrance flows from a flower, bringing a nice feeling to all who are able to cast that fragrance. Incidentally, this is the reason why people flock to have darshan of holy men and go to serene places. There is something there that passes on to the devotees and fills them also with peace. There is also an important and crucial practical point to be noted here. These days there is a feeling that peace, especially where there is a major conflict, would come only through discussions, negotiations, bargaining, etc. That is the bureaucratic view and it does have some utility that cannot be denied. However, as Gandhiji showed many a time, it is when a messenger filled with peace actually goes to the scene of violence and fury that the seeds of peace are truly sown. And now I offer two quotes that have great relevance to the issue of trusteeship that I argued for earlier. In the first quote, Swami reminds us that every one of us has a stake in what happens to the world. We all live in the world and cannot expect to be insulated from what happens within it. Especially today, we are faced with many huge problems, some of which I discussed earlier. Clearly, the world has to be put back on the rails and this is too important a task to be left solely to politicians, statesmen and to diplomats in the various units of the United Nations. It is true, all these people do have their own roles to play. However, as the primary stakeholders, it is we who have the basic responsibility of taking care of fixing the problems. Calling attention to this, Bhagwan Baba says, quote, The world has to be brought back to its rails. Only love and peace can achieve this. Fill your thoughts, speech and actions with love, truth and peace and engage yourselves in service actions. 
We aspire for peace and comfort all the time, but where can we find it? Is it to be found in the material world around us? Experience shows that peace or happiness got from external objects is not enduring. It is like a mirage which cannot quench the thirst of the deluded animal that runs towards it. The real source of peace is within every individual and it is this inner peace that can confer real joy. There is a very special reason why I am drawing attention to this particular quote. People often ask, Swami said golden days would be soon be here, but things are going from bad to worse. Why is Swami not doing anything? The answer is to be found in the above quote. Most devotees do not seem to have understood the essential basics of spirituality and of incarnation. The point is simple really. All the problems humanity is facing today have been created by humans and that too by ignoring God's command to strictly adhere to Dharma. That being the case, it does not make any sense to ask God in human form to clean up the mess we have created. Suppose a person lets his house to a tenant on rent. After two years, the tenant completely wrecks the house. The wash basin is broken. The floor tiles are badly damaged by dragging heavy furniture across it. The window panes are broken. The electrical fittings are ruined and so on. Now, who is supposed to take the responsibility for all this damage and repair the damage? Is it the tenant who spoiled the house or is it the owner? And yet when it comes to the world, which God has allowed us to occupy without charging any rent from us, the world has been ruined by humankind. Who has polluted the air, land and water? Who is responsible for alarming rise in crime, corruption, terrorism, corporate fraud, drug running, piracy in high seas, etc.? Is it man or God? The baseline for what God would do and would not do when he incarnates was clearly laid down by him when he came down on earth as Krishna. Do you recall the great Mahabharata war? Before that started, do you remember that both Kauravas and Pandavas approached Krishna for help? I am sure you do. And you also must be remembering what Krishna's response was. He made it very clear that his personal services were available only as an advisor and that he would not bear arms. Eventually, when the war was fought, let us remember, by the way, that this was not just a war between the Kauravas and the Pandavas, but a war between the forces of Adharma and that of Dharma. Well, on which side was Krishna? Krishna was with the side that fought for Dharma. So let us keep that in mind and combine that with Krishna's declaration in the Gita that whenever the practice of Dharma declines, he incarnates, etc. All this makes it abundantly clear what we can and cannot expect from Swami, the Sri Satyasai avatar. Four things become very clear. One, Swami is here to give a message to all of us and through us to humanity. That message is the message of universal love. Two, the current mess, huge as it is, has to be cleaned up by humanity. As they say, he who breaks the vase fixes it. Three, that fixing has not only got to be done by us, 
but using the glow of universal love and harmony. 4. And if we take this task as seriously as we really must, then be assured that Swami would be with us all the way. In other words, God is here in our midst in human form, mainly because the practice of Dharma in this Kali Yuga has become extremely weak. Indeed, the last few decades I have seen practically a nosedive. Thus, there rests on all of us so-called Sai devotees a huge responsibility, huge responsibility to put Dharma back on its great pedestal. That is the real task ahead of us. And it is to remind us what Dharma is all about that I made this attempt to bring to your notice some of the wonderful teachings about Dharma that Swami gave many decades ago. So, dear listeners, these broadcasts are not just another musing series meant to fill broadcast time and provide listeners with a feel-good feeling. Rather, they were meant to awaken us to the immense cosmic responsibility that awaits each and every one of us. Failing to discharge this responsibility would not only mean losing a fantastic opportunity to become dear to the Lord, but also letting down Swami, who has so tirelessly invested so much time and energy to bless us with so many discourses in order to make us understand why the incredible fortune of being born as a human is granted to us. Please think about it. Next week, I would like to dwell a bit more on this cosmic responsibility and why it is so important. And with that, I intend to bring the present series to an end, since there are so many other matters waiting to be attended. Meanwhile, I do hope you are getting at least some benefit out of these talks. Thanks for listening and I hope to be with you again next week. God bless. Jai Sai Ram.